Hey everyone, just want to say thanks for all the feedback and encouragement before we get into episode two. Received a lot of feedback by episode one. This time I figured out the editing software, so hopefully it sounds a little cleaner, less um and breaths in between and things like that. But either way, I hope you enjoyed the first episode. The second one should be a lot better. As always, it's always great to have more listeners, so help us out. Let's like, subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, tell your family. And hopefully you found this helpful. Or hope you'll hopefully you'll find this helpful. And hopefully you'll find future episodes helpful as well. So thanks again and enjoy episode two, features not bugs. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode two of Mr. Foz Explains It All. This one's called Features Not Bugs. And this episode is going to get right at the heart of why do things in Congress take so long to change when there may be something that seems like a no-brainer type of change, something that is widely accepted by the majority of Americans and polls really well, like, you know, we're talking like three quarters, 75, 25 type of issue where you have 75% love it, only 25% don't like it. And, you know, why does stuff like that take so long to get through Congress, even when maybe Congress has some type of impetus to act on it, where it may be politically good for them to act on it. Um, And one of the reasons why I want to talk about this is because our system is set up in a way where it is meant to be slow and deliberate. The process is meant to be slow and deliberate. And this comes directly from the framers of the Constitution back when they were figuring it all out in the 1780s. One of those things um, is, you know, changing the Constitution, um, which is the most expedient way and most judicially palatable way to get things changed through a constitutional amendment. You may know of such amendments to the Constitution like the Bill of Rights, the first 10, freedom of speech, right to bear arms. You may know ones after the Bill of Rights, like the 13th Amendment that outlawed slavery except in in times where you're incarcerated. Um, the, the 14th Amendment, where it grants equal protection to all citizens. So those amendments are the easiest way for the Constitution to be changed. Problem is, they're extremely hard in our modern world to get amendments passed. There hasn't been one in decades at this point. The last one was about not um, giving raises during sessions of Congress, something like that, some monetary type thing. One of the things um, that makes amendments so hard is just with the process that has to go through to get it done. So to change the Constitution, you need the law to be passed by two-thirds of both chambers. The amendment needs to be passed by two-thirds of both chambers. So think 67 senators and then two-thirds of the 435 House of Representatives. And then... Not only does it have to go through Congress, but it has to go through the states as well. It has to be ratified by three quarters of the U.S. states, 38 out of 50 states. Now, to put that into perspective, uh, Joe Biden won the last presidential election in 2022. He carried 25 states and the Republicans carried 25 states. So in, uh, in our modern world where things being bipartisan is so hard to come by, a constitutional amendment is almost unfeasible with how uh, polarized and calcified the electorate is, where Republicans are usually only voting Republicans, Democrats usually only voting Democrats, and that pool of the middle that is active in politics is drinking. Um, And there's very few swing voters, very few people craving that bipartisanship to get an amendment passed. 
So where does that leave us? If we're not going to amend the Constitution, which is, again, the most the, the best way to do it, because then the Supreme Court really doesn't touch it. They just interpret it and they encourage Congress to act all the time when it comes to laws. You know, they, they can have their interpretation, but they for the most part, especially in the modern world, they're like, if Congress passes a law, you know, we'll try to honor it. So let's get to that law passing part. First, the checks and balances, the um, the three branches of government that you learned about way back in your civics class, way back. For some of you may have been in the 40s or 50s, some of you maybe sooner. Uh, luckily, civics is making a comeback, at least in Massachusetts, where it has been totally emphasized in the new curriculum, where the past 20, 30, 40 years, maybe it wasn't. So we have this blind spot of people my age and a little older that may not have gotten this explicitly taught to them about the checks and balances, about the three branches of government who have equal control, equal power. Uh, laws, for the most part, come out of the legislative branch where you have the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. They propose laws. has to pass both chambers. When it passes both chambers, it can go to the president who can sign it and it goes into effect or... The president can veto it, and then it has to go back to Congress. And then you need that two-thirds majority to override the veto. Then the Supreme Court can get into it of there's legal challenges and things like that, and they can overturn parts or all of a law if they deem it not relevant under the Constitution, which is why the amendment process would be so much better for making common-sense changes that we would all like to see. Now, the biggest problem when it comes to laws and happen, making it happen expediently, making it happen fastly and quickly, is the United States Senate. The 100 senators, two from each state that we have here in this country. That body uh, moves slowly on purpose. Very rarely do things get done, especially when you have a situation where there's divided government like there is right now, where you have one party in control of the House, the other party in control of the Senate. When you have that, the House can send as many things as they want to the U.S. Senate. They can do whatever, they, you know, and that happened from 2018 to 2020 with the Democrats in the House and the Republicans in control of the Senate. And it's happening in reverse now with the Republicans in control of the House and the Democrats in control of the Senate. The House can send things to the Senate all they want. It's, it's not going to happen if the other party controls the chamber. So having a unified government is extremely important if you want your side to get things done. It's extremely important. Um... Because without that, you have this extremely rigid check on each other. And in a previous world, in a previous America, that was fine because compromise was easier to come by. But again, we live in a time period where, for better or for worse, we are extremely polarized in our beliefs. And it's going to take a lot for that bipartisanship to happen, a lot of compromise. And when you get, you know, when you tear things down as much as some people want to, the compromise is worse than what an extreme would be in some cases, where you don't get enough help to people, or you don't get what people need in the best way possible. Uh, I think the, you know, in my opinion, the, the Affordable Care Act with Obamacare is the perfect example of that, where we had an opportunity to have a single-payer universal health care system. And the death of Ted Kennedy really threw a wrench in the engine with getting that, because then you had conservative Democrats able to filibuster, which we'll get to next. And we caught and you know you had to compromise 
a lot of things in that healthcare plan that led to a really, really watered down version of it, um, where in some Republican states now it's really hard to access any part of it. Let's get to that filibuster. The filibuster is the number one problem of why things don't get done. The filibuster is what you think about when you think of, you know, this one politician standing up at the podium, holding the floor to prevent something to get passed, like Jimmy Stewart. But nowadays, it's not used in that way. Uh, it was used, and it's only been around for about 100 years. It's not, it's not in the Constitution. It's not required. Um, but what it means is if you don't have 60 votes in the Senate to break cloture, it's called, to end debate on the, on the bill, then you can't have a vote on the bill. Whether 50, 51 or 50 plus the vice president approve it or not, you can't vote on the bill if you don't get to 60 people to end debate. And so what happens now is you have mainly Republicans be like, we're not going to end debate. So you don't even get a vote on something. There's not even a vote. And so you have this completely bogged down, dragged down process in the Senate that is, gets hijacked by bad actors. Um, the most famous use of the filibuster in its classic form, where you had to stand there and hold the floor and actually talk, was by racist senator from South Carolina, Strom Thorman, back in the 60s. He was filibustering against the Civil Rights Act. And he stood up there for hours. I think it was something like 36 hours. I'd have to check that again. But he stood up there for hours and hours and hours, just droning on and on and on and on and on, all to prevent the Civil Rights Act from being passed. That's the most famous use of the filibuster. And so it's... So as these tools that's been used by people that do not want progress and do not want these positive changes to happen, to get things done. They want to slow down the whole process no matter what it is. Uh, Recently, however, Republicans have changed their stance on the filibuster for a few things. One, when they did the, the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think it was called that, was the keystone of President Trump's administration, um, which was a $1.7 trillion giveaway of our tax money to large corporations. They eliminated the filibuster to do that, to that one piece of legislation. And then beforehand, um, it was used to, they ended the filibuster for judges, to confirm judges. So you didn't need 60 votes to break cloture when you were approving judges, because that's one of the things the the president nominates judges, whether it's the Supreme Court or one of the lower courts, and the Senate is the one that does their confirmation process and approves them. So they eliminated the filibuster for that. And so now there's this groundswell in the Democratic Party to end the filibuster for other things that Democrats and progressives want to do, uh, like common sense gun control legislation or student debt relief or climate action, things like that. You know, a lot of parts of the bioengineering. One of them was um, universal child care universal community college, things like that. Things that will bring up people and make everyone's lives easier. A lot of, you know, there's, a, there's a movement to get Democrats to want to end the filibuster to do that while Democrats have control of the Senate. The problem is there's not, a, there's not 51 Democrats to do that in the Senate. Um, you have two senators who are actively working against the, uh, the filibuster, or wanting to support the filibuster. Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, who changed her party to an independent and is ranked for re-election in 2024, and Joe Manchin, who's a senator from West Virginia, who's flirting with a third-party run president, but we'll get to that in a later episode. Uh, those two were the main reason why the, uh, the filibuster didn't get eliminated 
or changed at all when um, Democrats controlled three branches of government from 2020 to 2022. And it really was a major roadblock into getting a lot of the common sense things done, like especially the, the universal background checks on firearms at a national level, things like that. That's what was really in the the Uvalde shooting. That was the most disheartening thing to see was we couldn't get rid of the filibuster or do something like that. So my encouragement and my actions for you all in this, um, in this, in this time is to just look for senators that support ending the filibuster to do great things that'll make our lives better. That's the best thing. Uh, look, that happened in Pennsylvania where people supported John Fetterman, who was anti-filibuster and he got elected. It was happening in other places too. There was it was part of the movement where you can go and you can look up to which which of these candidates support eliminating the filibuster, and that's those are the ones you have to support on the Democratic side for sure. And then vote for them in the primary. And get people to vote for them in the primary. The primary is where you pick the best candidate for your party, and the primary is where you get the most bang for your buck in terms of your vote. I think a lot of us forget about that, where we show up. Every four years on November 6th to vote for president and whoever else is on the ballot, whether we know them or not, it's crucially important to show up for local elections, for primary elections especially, and for ballot questions. Show up for every election. Look at the candidates. Look at the ones that want to get things done. Look at the ones that want to eliminate the filibuster at the national level. Because we can all benefit from ending the gridlock. And I think the gridlock is one of our main frustrations where we see bad things happening and we want people to do something about it. And they don't. For one reason or another, one of those big reasons is the filibuster and is the U.S. Senate. So support those candidates who want to get rid of it. Thank you for listening.